0: Thank you so much, church, for being here tonight. Hope you have a Bible. We're going to open up to Jeremiah. We're actually going to begin this new study uh, in chapter 29. Uh, The reason why we're going to begin in chapter 29 is I have a hunch most of us know Jeremiah the most for a very specific verse that is found in this chapter, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but we are beginning a brand new series, a brand new study in the book of Jeremiah, and we could only really do this on a Wednesday night because it really, um, this is is a little bit more of a deep dive more of a lengthy study, Um, and you that come here for these Bible studies, I know you love God's Word, you want to know every inch of God's Word, every page of God's Word, so we don't want to leave anything out. Um, So uh, I've hesitated before jumping into some of these longer prophetic books. Um, Jeremiah is a little bit of a different kind of prophetic book than maybe what you're used to when you hear prophecy. He doesn't really talk about the future of the earth, he talks about more um, about his generation, but we can learn a lot from it. Um, But I've hesitated before jumping into these longer books, but by no means are we going to spend the next 52 weeks in Jeremiah. That's how many chapters there are in Jeremiah. You'll find that uh, we'll find that really the first 30 chapters of Jeremiah. Tell the full story. The latter half of the book is really just kind of an appendix that tells some things that were left out of earlier parts that were probably added in by Jeremiah's scribe later on. We'll get to all that. So I don't want anybody thinking, wow, we're going to be in this book for the next year. We might be. I don't know. But you love God's Word. I do, too. We're going to be cross-referencing from all sorts of uh, other books along the way. Um, but uh, the reason why we are starting this book in Jer- this study in Jeremiah um, is honestly, w- the, my intention was to look at some of Jeremiah's prayers. You know, we've been studying the prayers of some of the Old Testament saints. We did Jabez, David. Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Um, I uh, had been working on some messages from Jeremiah that were based on Jeremiah's prayers. But turns out Jeremiah prays a lot in his book, and there were five major prayers that Jeremiah prays that I wanted to look at, and then I thought about Condensing that down into one, that would take too long and would leave too much out. Then I thought about just doing those five, and I thought, well, if I do those five, I'm going to have to talk about all the other stuff that we aren't going to read. So then it just led me to this place of we need to just spend a good couple of weeks, maybe months, talking about Jeremiah, and, and honestly, honestly, Jeremiah is has, it has, one of the books of the Bible that has a very special um, place in my heart, um, and I, I've long since wanted to do a, a deeper study in this book, and the Lord has uh, just recently led me to this place, so I want to just kind of tell you that my connection with Jeremiah is rather unique. Um, I was first introduced to Jeremiah, much like most people were first introduced to Jeremiah in his book, um, with a very specific verse. Um, so I want to read that verse. Uh, most of you can quote this verse by heart, which is great, but if you don't, I want to want you to look at it in your Bible because it'd be a great verse to quote. Um, but tonight we're going to kind of understand, we're going to begin to understand where this verse comes from and how this verse really leads us to understand the whole book. Um, but there's a lot behind this verse. Um, but I came to know Jeremiah because of a famous verse that is referenced and quoted and on bumper stickers and on online post and all that stuff. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven of course, is the verse. We all know it. Um, if you don't know it, uh, maybe you will learn it tonight. Uh, but not even without giving any reference to the previous verses, the following verses, I just want to read this verse um, because this really is a tone setter for the whole study. Um, and later on, we'll do a much uh, more uh, a focused look at the whole chapter. But Jeremiah twenty nine eleven reads like this. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace or thoughts of welfare, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope, to give you an expected end, some translations have. So if you're like me, I came to know Jeremiah because I heard that verse quoted. Never read it from the Bible or didn't read it from the Bible originally. I just heard people talk about it. I uh, saw it on t-shirts. Uh, someone in my high school uh, passed away, and this was her favorite verse, and this was the verse that got really blown up in my generation at, at West Lincoln, and, and I learned this verse just by proxy of being around people quoting this verse all the time. Um, so I memorized it, and I quoted it and all throughout high school without really considering much else of what Jeremiah had to say, without really knowing anything else about jeremiah now don't get me wrong i had glanced at the book of jeremiah before i had attempted to read the book of jeremiah before like i had had attempted to read a lot of the books of the old testament that get a little bit dense along the way but i couldn't have remembered and couldn't remembered uh, didn't remember much of what i had read Um, and i would always fall off like we would uh, like most of us do in some of these books um but uh, i'd probably heard a sermon or two preached from jeremiah maybe the one about the potter and the clay Uh, but otherwise all I knew about Jeremiah up until I was about 17 was Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. and don't get me wrong I had been a Christian for a, a good while before I had read the Bible a lot I probably had read the New Testament a few times um, And I would read through the Old Testament the stories that I had heard and liked and Genesis and some of the more narrative books, but honestly, I stayed away from the the big long prophecy books because when I heard prophecy, I thought about the end of the world. I had a little condensed study guide that would tell me what I needed to read and what chapter I should read, and I didn't need to read the rest of it. So, you know, I would just kind of move on. And then, as I obviously was called in the ministry, and as I began to be more and more, uh, you know, focused on and hungry to know God's Word in entirety, I began reading through, reading through the Bible uh, maybe a time or two. And honestly, I read through Jeremiah a couple times and thought, well, I don't know what I just read. Um, but more than any other book, in the Old Testament and New Testament, every time I kept reading through Jeremiah, it became more and more captivating to me. Uh, and what I learned quickly was Jeremiah was full of 29 11s. It, it wasn't full of 29 11s, meaning that verses like these, verses like this, that seem to be so positive, so uplifting, um, there's a lot behind this verse. And when you dig into the whole book of Jeremiah, it gets a lot darker and a lot more difficult to read, and for Jeremiah to come to the conclusion that God uh, that God had peace and future and a hope to give people after what he had been through and what we're going to read that he went through, it became more and more just just captivating to me to want to know more about this man that could write something like this, that could claim that God was good and that God had good things to give to his people after all that he had been through, which was not good at all. It was actually a whole lot of bad. So I want to tell you, and if you you begin this journey with me, if you read through Jeremiah with me, I just want to go ahead and warn you up front, Jeremiah is a tough read, not because it's difficult or it's dense, but because it's a hard book to process, because Jeremiah goes through a lot of tough stuff. His ministry was brutal with a capital B. He rarely saw any sunny days or any bright days, yet... He always found a way to press on, which makes this promise verse that we know him for so much more meaningful, honestly. This verse was not born out of an easy time, but it was born out of perhaps one of the most gut-wrenching and demoralizing ministries that any preacher has ever had to bear. And I don't say that lightly. That Jeremiah's ministry was the most, is probably the most gut-wrenching and demoralizing, as in just just leaving you empty and just devastated and feeling like you have zero significance. Jeremiah was put through the ringer time and time again, and it's a wonder he had any ability to take another step. And there are many days when he didn't want to. We're going to hear him say that out of his own mouth. Just a little snapshot of some of the things Jeremiah went through. Jeremiah's hometown forsakes him and actually rises up to try to kill him. The religious leaders that Jeremiah should have, you would think, would have gotten along with, they actually team up to persecute him and end up having him arrested. Jeremiah is forbidden to marry, which, again, it's just insult to injury. Why would he be forbidden to marry? We'll learn about that. So Jeremiah was a lonely man. God wouldn't let him have a family. God allowed him to be forsaken by his family. His religious peers persecuted him. And to top it all off, nobody, and I mean nobody, responded favorably. Him. now you know as a pastor this is not and, and I sat across the desk from a, a man that I admire a lot um, in 12 or 10 years ago almost 11 years ago and I was actually going to preach from Jeremiah uh, uh, that night at his church and he just said do you know that Jeremiah do you know Jeremiah's ministry was not that successful and I thought well yeah I guess I don't I mean I love this chapter right? I hadn't really read the whole book or I had not really studied the whole book which really led me to do that but the the man reminded me that Jeremiah did not have a single convert. Nobody responded favorably to Jeremiah. If anything, they only responded unfavorably to him because any time anybody responded to Jeremiah, it was usually with a bad or a negative thing and something that was against him and, and 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 that would, you know, come at him with persecution. So Jeremiah did not have a pretty did not have a captive audience. The only friends that we read of him having was his scribe And another man that we'll learn along the way. So Jeremiah did not have an easy time, and to make matters worse, he his story ends abruptly. So when we get to the end of his story, there's no, but he lived happily ever after. There's no, but he was kind of like Daniel and got to live in a good place in the in the uh, uh, captivity Babylon captivity. Jeremiah's story ends abruptly. We don't really know what happens to him. Um, He literally gets kidnapped and you know he isn't a kid but he gets kidnapped and taken hostage to Egypt and his story just ends so much for the man that gave up so much for God it doesn't sound like much of a future or a hope yet Jeremiah still believed that God was good and that all that trust in God have peace and a future and a hope to look forward to Yet he did not see that in his own life. Yet he still wrote it. You see, Jeremiah believed and he loved his God. He loved his country. He loved his brothers and sisters of every tribe of Israel. He even loved his enemies, many of whom were his brothers and sisters of Israel. Jeremiah wept a lot. If you read this book, maybe you've heard Jeremiah called the weeping prophet. He's called that because he wept a lot. He also wrote the book of Lamentations which is just more of his tears written to words. He wept for his people. He wept for his country. He wept for himself. He was a broken man. Not because he had sinned, but because Israel had sinned and he was burdened and became broken under the weight of their sin Israel of course was broken too not out of burden but out of rebellion against God Jeremiah is a very emotional book for this matter we see him intercede for the very nature very nation that God um, loved yet rejected God that rejected his word and his plan he had for them Jeremiah finds himself in a very difficult place in ministry he loves his people But they don't love him. I mean, Jeremiah, every single day, he gets up and goes to the same street corner and preaches the same passionate message. Every day he goes to the temple and intercedes for people. Every day he would reach out to the kings and leaders of Israel. He loved them. He loved them with all of his life, yet they do not love him. He is in relentless pursuit of his people long after they silence him and literally try to muzzle him. But does that remind you of anybody? Jeremiah loved the people that did not love him. He pursued a people that had silenced him. If it reminds you of someone, it should. As Jeremiah represented God, he learned and felt how God felt towards israel because of course god loves his people yet we don't always love him right god pursues his people relentlessly yet we often not only reject him but silence him jeremiah's ministry was complicated it was messy and in the long run after rebellion rejection and devastation god's mercy endures and that's why, through Jeremiah, that's why, though Jeremiah doesn't get a happy ending, eventually God's people do get one. Yet, not the generation of God's people that we're going to read about, namely Jeremiah, doesn't get a happy ending. But Jeremiah teaches us that even though he didn't get a happy ending, it doesn't mean that God's people ultimately don't get the best ending. See, Jeremiah proves that even though we don't see the payoff in this life, it doesn't mean it's not coming. That absolutely it is coming, but we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. In our study of Jeremiah, I hope we can walk in his shoes, hopefully find his perspective and his words as a vehicle for our own thoughts and our own feelings in a world that remains just as broken or or even much more broken. And while we wonder and wait for a happy ending, or even better, a new beginning for our own generation, maybe we'll never get one. But... Through Jeremiah, we'll learn that even so, we should never stop believing and never stop looking towards the horizon for what God has promised. You see, here's the thing. I heard, I grew up, and there's probably a sector of Christianity out there that will tell you that Jeremiah 20.11 is is a promise that you will see fulfilled in your lifetime. I can't lie to you and tell you that that's actually going to happen. Of course, God is good, and God's going to bless you more than anything else is going to happen to you in this life. But my point is this. Jeremiah didn't see the ending he believed he was going to get, and he eventually did get. He just was on the other side and couldn't write about it. You see, while we wait for things to get better, maybe they won't get as best as we wish they would, but that doesn't mean that we won't eventually get that best. And that we aren't going to absolutely get that best. And and what I mean is this. just Just because our lives are too fragile and too fleeting to obtain perfection, it doesn't mean that God's promises have failed. And that is the moral of Jeremiah before we ever even read a verse from it. Just because we are too fragile and too fleeting to ever get the perfection that we dream of and desire and that God wills for us, it doesn't mean that God's promises have failed. In fact, that's the whole point of Jeremiah. It's all about how God has made a promise to his people and he intends on keeping those promises and we will realize or see those promises realized and in eternity, those promises will reign supreme. And in the meantime, we hold on and we trust in God as king. Even when, especially when we cannot see what he is doing. You see, the whole, the backbone, or the crux, or the, back, the backdrop of Jeremiah, excuse me, is that God had a covenant with Israel. And that's why I've called this Bible study Covenant, because we're going to see how important covenants are to this book. God had a covenant with Israel, and Jeremiah is really all about, Jeremiah centers the book, centers around God's covenant with, with Israel, what it means to carry that weight on both sides, and also clarifying its intent. So to cert, to, to kind of make this a, a proper introduction, I want to spend the next few minutes talking about what a covenant is and why covenants are so important in the Bible. And then at the end of the time, we'll turn back to chapter 1 of Jeremiah and read a few verses, but we got to talk about covenants because I didn't name this series covenant. Uh, for nothing, and also it's important that we know um, what covenants are and, and, and the nature of the covenants that God made with Israel and that God has made with us. So, a covenant is just a fancy name for a promise. Um, a covenant is literally, in Hebrew, it just means a promise. Now, we understand that covenants are more legal in their nature. Um, a, a covenants are commonplace in the world uh, to, to this day. Um, if you go and you buy a car, you sign a covenant, right? And if you don't keep your part of the deal, there's going to be some uh, you know financial consequences, right? If you uh, enter in a, in a, an agreement or a partnership legally, right, you are in a covenant with someone. Uh, you sign a covenant whenever you you know go to to a store and you scan things across the the barcode you are making a covenant with that machine right that you are going to pay your part of the deal right and if you just decide not to there are consequences right we all deal with covenants every day we just don't call them covenants right we just use other names for them but covenants are just agreements they're promises Um, but in the ancient world covenants were high stakes they were always drawn up because of a lot being on the line, and upholding them was even more serious because of what was on the line. In the ancient world, as nations developed, religions were organized. And if you study, and this is something really cool, and I know I'm a history nerd, so I like this kind of stuff. I love studying like I'm talking about history from ten thousand or you know five thousand years ago, six thousand years ago. Uh, you know I love history and I love the way kind of the the, the the civilizations developed. But one thing that is really really cool and uh, that I love the Bible because it helps me understand it even better. Um, As nations developed, religion is about as old. Religions are as old as nations. Um, and what I mean by that is if you study the earliest of civilizations, before there were governments like we know them, before there were doctors, before there were any of the uh, uh, you know, fields and, and professions that we all know of today, the, ver- the earliest of professions, the earliest organizations in every civilized government was religions. Uh, organized religion. Wise men, always men, were appointed or would self-appoint themselves because they would draw lines between conditions and circumstances with their behavior. So, if you study the history, if you go on, you know, the internet or go and look at an encyclopedia, history books, the the civilizations of Mesopotamia, the earliest Egyptian government systems, you know, all these ancient, ancient governments, ancient, ancient um, nations. If you study them the earliest things that organized in those nations were religions, and the way they always would basically come together is wise people, or people that said they were wise, basically said this. There's a correlation between the conditions of our world, the circumstances that we're experiencing, and our behavior. That obviously, if we do certain things, certain things happen, and if we don't do certain things, Some things don't happen. And they begin to make connections with the weather and with fertility and with you know financial prosperity and with all sorts of things. And these wise men who would become priests would say, Well, wow, the reason why the harvest is good is because you've been good. The reason why the rain is good is because you've been good. The reason why things are bad for you is because you've been bad, haven't you? And they would make all these connections and they would draw, they would literally connect dots. They would study the stars, right? They would literally connect the dots in the heavens and say, this is some sign from God. All ancient religions really began by people observing circumstances and conditions and making some connection with behavior. And even if you were bad, you did this thing that helped counter the bad thing, and the gods were favorable toward you. So as religions developed they all made these you know observations and the earliest civilizations suggests that religion and belief in God or gods and what's cool is is the fact that religion and the nations came together as one it suggests that belief in a creator is almost an innate idea as in that no one had to go and tell these people hey there's a God. it's almost as you study the earliest civilization they had this innate idea, this, this notion that there's a God, which proves to me, I think, which proves what the Bible teaches in Genesis 1 through Genesis 10, or Genesis 11, that there was one God who made the world, and the world rebelled and left him, and after sin scattered the earth and divided the people, and their languages were confounded, people are all started from that place. There's a God, we failed him, how can we fix it? There's no other rationale, there's no other conclusion that you can come to but that which the Bible gives us. That all these nations started from this very same place. There's a God, we failed Him, how can we fix it? And over time, the nations would add more gods to the table, but they all started from that same place. God made us, we failed Him, what can we do to fix it? Religion was born out of this desire to reconcile the divide between creature and creator. And the holy men who tried to speak to and fill this void reasoned that all the chaos and death in the world is a result of God's judgment. And they reasoned that maybe we can satisfy God's wrath and bloodlust if we start sacrificing animals to Him because maybe we can shift the blame from us to these beasts religion was right to point out that essentially creation had a covenant relationship with its creator religion wrongfully assumed however the nature of this relationship see religion says the nature of the relationship is conditional that God is waiting and he's tapping his foot and if you don't do what he says you're not gonna reconcile the divide The religion all agreed, all the ancient religions, the ancient Egyptian religion, the ancient Roman religion, the ancient Greek religion, the ancient religion of every every nation and every society except one, all basically agreed. There's a conditional covenant between God and people, and if we somehow can fix our part, God will accept us. It was all, if we do, then God will. If we don't, then God won't. Religion was and still is the attempt to please God by doing or not doing, trying to persuade God into holding back from cursing or pour out blessings. Eventually, the nations would create religious systems that featured hundreds of gods, gods that were at war with each other, and the systems would navigate these twists and turns to try to piggyback on the stronger God to come out on top and find some way to keep that God or those gods happy. That's what religion is, trying to keep the God happy so he'll make you happy. What made Israel so distinct and so unique in the ancient world was that they believed they had a special covenant with their God, who wasn't just a God, he was the God of creation. Israel believed that when all the world scattered, that their founder, was the one who had the connection back to the original and the only God. When every other nation went their own way and they got confused and they had their own version of the story and they began to twist it and manipulate it and and get it wrong and add more to it, Israel believed that their founder, Abraham, knew the one true God, the only God, and that he was carrying the truth that the rest of the world had gotten wrong or had gotten confused. Israel believed that they had an unconditional covenant with God. That's big, biblical, uh, you know, lights going off. When you see unconditional covenant, you should think, wow, that's important. Because the rest of the world thinks we have a conditional covenant with God. Israel believed they had an unconditional covenant, one that rested entirely on him and was based on his loving kindness. Israel believed that yes we are sinful and yes we have left God but God has not left us he is loving he is kind he is merciful and we are unconditionally his Israel believed that exclusively it all started with Abraham God told Abraham he was going to start a nation with him and through him that would eventually lead to something bigger that originally there was the world And then there was the fall. So then God started with Israel because he had to start small. And through Israel, he brought redemption through Jesus. And through redemption, he would get the whole world back. Notice the funnel, right? The hourglass, right? The world, Israel, the world. Not saying that Israel doesn't still remain important to the story, but the idea was that God lost the world, but he chose Israel to gain the world. For God so loved the world, right? The covenant God made with Abraham was twofold, though, about how to be a child of God and how God was going to use Abraham's nation, Israel, to spread this good news all over. The unconditional covenant God made with Abraham, God promised Abraham he was going to start a nation through him, but also that he was going to save the world if you just believed in him. That you could have a relationship with God by faith, And in Genesis 15, 6, the Scripture says that Abraham believed or trusted in the Lord. And in response to his faith, God counted it to him as righteousness. As in, God looked at Abraham's ledger in heaven that said sinful, and God erased the sinful and put saved. Now that's before Jesus, right? Right? because Abraham was believing in God's promises. God's promise that he was going to save the world on his own power. Abraham didn't know exactly how it was going to work. He just believed that God would make it work. Of course, we know how it works. And from this point on, or from Jesus on, we don't wonder how it's going to happen. We know how it happened. But Abraham showed that it could be done even before by believing or trusting in the Lord, and he received a righteous standard, and not just a good standing in heaven, but a personal relationship in his heart. And here's how God, here's how we know it's unconditional. Because later in that story, God tells Abraham to cut up some animals because that's what they did when they made promises. They would cut a covenant. They would cut animals in half. And if you and I were making a covenant, we would both walk through the halves of the animals. You would cut, you would walk through, I would walk through. And by doing so, we were shaking hands saying, hey, if I don't keep my part of the deal, you can basically cut me up like I did this animal you're holding me to it, right? I cut the animal in half, I'm walking through it, I'm going to keep my part of the deal. You walk through it, you're going to keep your part of the deal, right? It's conditional based on both parties. But that's not what happened in this story. The scripture says that Abraham fell asleep because God put him to sleep. And when the sun went down, it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, the God, being represented by this fire, passed between these pieces. But Abraham did not pass between these pieces. He was sound asleep because it was a one-sided, unconditional covenant. God made a covenant with Abram on that day. An unconditional covenant. This is how you become a child of God. By faith in what I'm doing. The very next chapter, Abraham makes a pretty major mistake. But that didn't mean he lost out on the covenant. God shows back up in chapter 17 and says, Abraham, you messed up big time. You're going to pay for the consequences of messing up big time. But I want to remind you, you're still mine. Because God made an unconditional covenant. Now, through Abraham, God started the nation of Israel. And there are two things that go on in Israel's origin story. And this is why I had to do all that and tell you all this. As we see Israel's story told, there are two things that go on. A continuation of an unconditional covenant based on faith. A continuation of what God started in Genesis 15. Trust me, it's on it's me. Trust me, I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. Trust me, have faith, you're saved, you're mine, you're my people, I'm your God. But, when the nation gets organized, there is an institution of a conditional covenant based on obedience. You know that conditional covenant as the law. Don't ever confuse, please, don't ever confuse the unconditional covenant God made with Abraham that was fulfilled and took to a new level in Jesus. Don't ever confuse the unconditional covenant God made with Abraham with the conditional covenant God made with Moses. They're separate things. One is about how to be personally saved The other was about the nation of Israel and its ability to prosper and be successful. Now, there was a point to that, so follow me here. Over time, as Israel became established, the previous covenant with Abraham was absorbed, not because God wanted it to be, but because it was just kind of forgotten. Because it was all about, we have a nation, we're powerful, what do we got to do to stay powerful? What do we got to do to stay in the land? You'll see that all throughout the Old Testament. God said, if you do this, you'll stay in the land. Nobody talked about Abraham anymore. Nobody needed a personal relationship with God because they had this national identity with God's people as God's nation. It became much more about belonging to Israel. They assumed God would be there, and of course he always was. But it was more about being Israel. It was not meant to be that way, but it just became that way. Just like we turn our eyes on the wrong things, right? The people began assuming that God's relationship with everyone was contingent on his relationship with Israel, which was based on this, if we do, God will. If we don't, God won't. Mentality. God had promised Israel that that its prosperity and its success as a nation was dependent on its obedience and its faithfulness. Deuteronomy is all about that. Fleshing out the law. Israel's story in the Old Testament, hear me very clearly. Israel's story in the Old Testament is proof that this model was never going to work and was not sustainable. Because how long did Israel, the nation, last in its Old Testament form? Not very. That's the point. It was meant to reveal that the model the rest of the world was using to reach its God, the model Israel tried to function by, would not work. All the while, God proves to Israel that they didn't need land nor luxuries to have Him. Because when they lose the land, and they lost it, didn't they? And when when they lose the luxuries, and they lost them, when they lose the land and they lose the luxuries, they still had Him. Because He had made an unconditional covenant with them. That was not based on the law, it was based on His love. And that's where Christianity comes from. God had created His own nation to show His people and the whole world that He ultimately was not confined nor could be contained. Next slide. By buildings or borders, as in temples or the nation of Israel, in Israel's unfaithfulness, His faithfulness is punctuated because when they get deported to Babylon, guess who goes with them? God. When they get shaken around and passed around to Persia, guess who goes with them? God. Even when there was no Israel the nation and was no temple, God was still with them because He had made an unconditional covenant with them. So the up and down story of Israel reveals that God had a better plan in the works and was using Israel to set the stage for Christianity to come. And the reason why this is so important, because when we get to Jeremiah 33, we're going to see Jeremiah say, this is what God has been building towards. But until then, we're going to learn a lot. We're going to learn about the dysfunction of Israel, their inability to please God by works, their rebellious nature that didn't even desire to obey him. We're going to read about the inability for a conditional covenant at all to reconcile the divide between creature and creator. We cannot keep our part of the deal. And in Jeremiah, we see that conditional covenant of Moses fall apart. And we see rising back to the surface this unconditional covenant. When Israel was about to fall off the face of the earth, God shows back up and says, you've let me down. You've broken my law. You're lost and rebellious. And your covenant that Moses made with you and the promise to be a nation, that has come to an end. But I have not come to an end. And you as my people have not reached your end. And what comes back to the surface The true nature of God comes back to the surface. His unconditional love and his commitment to his own Israel, but sooner than later, the whole world that would believe in him. Jeremiah goes along for this bumpy and wild ride, an emotional ride. He arrives at this place where we see one covenant go on the shelf and another one begin to take form. At the heart of this story, is the love of our God who relentlessly pursues us and reminds us that He always has a greater plan. Greater in scale, greater in scope. Greater than what we can fathom. Greater than what we often settle for. I want to close our time by reading just another single verse from the first chapter of Jeremiah. And this is when Jeremiah is called into ministry. So if you flip over to Jeremiah 1, we're going to look at chapter 1 in full next week, so don't worry. But this is how Jeremiah comes to know God and how he first hears from God. Jeremiah, technically, verse 4 and 5. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified, I appointed you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. That Jeremiah's voice was bigger than just to his generation, to Israel, was going to go to the whole world. God reminds Jeremiah that before he was ever Jeremiah, the Jewish prophet, God formed him and had a purpose for him and had appointed him. That before he came to life and long after his earthly life that he came from and was going back to God. What God, I think, wants us to know, his desire and plans for us are beyond what we all think and see. We cannot shrink God down to the size, the nature, the color, or even the locations of this world. If we do that, we risk missing out on His eternal purposes for us. Because Jeremiah said they're greater than what we can understand. What we need to always come back to is that God unconditionally loves us and that we can know Him by trusting in His promises. That's what we're going to see Jeremiah come back to over and over again. If we do this, we'll find restoration from brokenness by receiving a new heart from God. But if we don't, will be dragged down with the rest of the world. Jeremiah learns this as a prophet to Israel. In his agony and laments, he learns to rest and rely on God. As he is astounded by Israel's sin and their hypocrisy, he is driven further to a place of dependence on God. While he is not able to fix Israel, he learns the much deeper problem Israel has that we all have. The solution is that we need a new heart It's fitting that Jeremiah's story begins before his conception because our connection to God begins in our infancy and must always remain intimate. It's about a personal relationship at the heart. We must remember, God formed us. He's appointed us. He's above and beyond this world. Our purposes and our destiny are as well above and beyond and greater than this world. This is God's covenant to us, that we would trust him and live as his child. Something we all can do, right? And if we do, no matter what we go through, we'll be able to say, as Jeremiah said, I know that God has a plan for me. Faults of peace, not of evil." a future and hope let me pray for you father thank you for your word thank you for reminding us that you have an unconditional plan and you have unconditional love and favor towards us Lord, we often try to take things in our own hands and we try to shrink them down into being things that we can fit together and piece together on our own, in our own ability. But we can't do that because we're not able to do that. Father, help us to accept your plan, to trust in your plan. Lord, we're going to learn from Jeremiah's story that Israel could not do it on their own. And that was the point. They needed to trust you. Lord, help us to learn from their story and not have to go the way they went, but we can prevent ourselves from suffering and going down that road, but we can trust in you and be salvaged, be saved beforehand. Help us, Lord, to see that you've made a promise to us that you intend on keeping. So, Lord, help us to just stay where we need to be and trust you with all of our hearts. God, thank you for the story of Jeremiah. Thank you for the promises we've already learned tonight, that you have a plan for us that begins in our infancy Lord, help us to remain in an intimate relationship with you that stays at the heart of the matter. We might follow you and serve you and dwell in your shadow and under your wings every single day. We ask this in the almighty, awesome name of Jesus. Amen.